And let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and pray and ask that you would uh, open our hearts and speak to us. May the church hear what the Spirit is saying to her today. And Lord, without question, there, there are some heavy things that uh, Paul wrote in these verses we're going to look at today. And um, so I am I'm begging, I'm asking for the help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, to help people just to, um, to listen quietly, uh, respectfully, uh, to take these things in, even though for some of them these might be new concepts, new words, new thoughts and ideas. But to trust that in, the, in your word is life. And Jesus, you said that he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. May that be our experience personally this morning. May this message of your second coming, and even of your coming for your bride, the church, have a purifying effect upon all those who hear this message. We give you this time. Thank you for hearing our prayers, and by faith we thank you for answering them. In Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, Amen. All right. Um, Let's begin with verse 1, because I was in Africa two weeks, and then last week we shared some testimonies, so we've been out of uh, Thessalonians for a little while. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, brethren, whenever you see brethren, you always have to include the sister, and it's, it's inclusive. Now, brothers and sisters... Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Apparently, somebody shared a a rumor that Jesus had already made, had already come back. And where were you guys? You didn't know? Apparently, you're out of the loop, or you got left behind, or it's already, the day of the Lord is here. And it set a panic already through the early church. Now, Paul is saying, hey, I don't care what you hear. If you, you know, trust me, you, you, it's not, if you hear a letter, and supposedly has my signature on it, that the day of the Lord has happened, don't be ruffled. Uh, don't be shaken in your mind. No way. In this particular case, Paul talking about the day of the Lord, he's talking about the second coming of Jesus. And he is telling them, look, when that happens, the whole world will know, believers and unbelievers alike. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says that when he appears, every eye will see him. Why? Because his coming will be seven times the brightness of the sun shining at noon and its strength. The whole world will see him. There will be nothing hidden about it. Now, ironically, there are groups that within the last hundred years or so uh, that have proclaimed that Jesus actually came back. They made a date and they said, yes, Jesus is coming back. And and then when nothing dramatic happened, well, where did he go? And they said, well, he was out in the desert 
he appeared only to a select group, only those who were initiated, only those who were really ready. And, and there are groups still following some of these groups and false predictions and all the rest. Don't be deceived. The day of the Lord, you don't, you don't have to guess about it. You will know it when that happens. Now, verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, there's a lot there that, we, that we've already covered. Suffice to say, this individual that is being spoken of in verses 3 and 4 is, is whom we would refer to as the Antichrist. Um, and, and if I could you know, take away some of the weird misnomers, especially, you know, Hollywood, their ideas of the Antichrist and this, you know, silly little kid, Damien, you know, you know, and all this weird stuff. It's not how it's going to be, okay? I'm just, it's not going to be like that. Um, Anti-Christ can be, not only means against, but anti can mean instead of. This guy that is coming will be a man. And by the way, the one who coined the phrase uh, is the Apostle John. In 1 John, he refers to the spirit of Antichrist. And it's the same guy that Paul is referring to here. Um, the instead of Christ. Now, I think that, that it's pretty obvious that the whole world does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. For a lot of people that just don't believe that, they don't accept that, they don't expect he's coming back, they have all kinds of ideas and theories and, and so forth. So in light of that, since they are not looking for him, nor do they believe in him, nor do they regard or respect the Hebrew prophets, let alone Jesus or the apostles, um, they still want a, a, and I suppose would want and desire a, some kind of a human uh, deliverer of peace, especially in the insane world in which we live today. I've mentioned before that uh, at one time, and this has actually been several years ago, I read an article, I believe it was in Time Magazine, that said, if you took all the arsenals of weapons in the world and somehow, God forbid, they were all at this simultaneously unleashed, we have enough weapons to destroy every living human being. I think it was somewhere between 24 or 25 times. Now, that, that to me is insane on a number of levels. Number, first of all, once is enough if everybody's already dead. But beyond that, think of the trillions of dollars that have been invested in weapons and, and warfare, and then look at the famines and the disease and the starvation and uh, the people that don't even have food. But for some reason, man can't seem to, to turn his weapons into instruments uh, of or implements of food. But it's there. It's just we cannot seem to get our act together. So we, of course, are waiting for the Messiah to come. When the Messiah comes, they will beat their swords into plowshares. Meaning, when the Messiah comes, no more war. Ever. Is that, a, is that not a great thought? 
there will never, ever, under the reign of Jesus the Messiah, be war ever again. No military, no need for police, no even laws, as it were, upon the book, for the kingdom of heaven will have come. The lion will lie down with the lamb. The deserts will blossom as the rose. Um, It's going to be a glorious day. But for the world, then, if they're not looking for a a supernatural savior, then they have to come up with an earthly one, and that's who this guy will be. And for a brief season of time, he will, it will seem like it actually worked. He will deliver peace at a time when there is tremendous turmoil and warfare in the world, and and everyone is, is driven to madness and fear because of the chaos. And he delivers a seven-year covenant, according to Daniel the prophet, and Jesus uh, as well, a seven-year covenant between Israel and the neighbors. Uh, it's a covenant between Israel and many nations, is what it says. For seven years. The first three and a half which, it seems like everything's going fine. And then the Bible predicts three and a half years into it, it falls apart, which is not a great stretch to believe that a Middle East peace process falls apart. But then it, it, it unravels into this global war that, that ultimately becomes Armageddon. And Jesus says concerning that, if those days were not shortened, no flesh would survive. Now he said that 2,000 years ago, but ironically, you and I are really kind of the first generation where that's even possible, that no flesh would survive. As I have mentioned many times in my years of walking with the Lord and growing and my understanding and reading Revelation and about the plagues and the tribulation and all the rest. My understanding now, though God takes credit for it uh, and responsibility for it uh, in his judgment of the earth, really much of what happens between Revelation 6 and Revelation 19 of the seven years of tribulation is what man does to himself, what man does to man. And Jesus said that unless those days were short, no flesh would survive. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So literally, it's like the world goes nuts and they go to war uh, and uh, and then Jesus comes before they can kill everything and everybody. And he stops it. And he brings with him the kingdom of heaven. That is then the scenario. So now, um, look with me here in verse 5. He says, Do you not remember that when I was uh, still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Um, Jesus is coming in great glory. Read with me in your notes, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. Let's read that out loud together. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True, with justice. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. The Lord is coming, and that's a description in Revelation 19 of the second coming of the Lord. However, I think it's important to make to distinguish between what I what I call and many call the rapture of the church and the return of Jesus in his second coming. 
there's a little uh, difference, I believe. The Lord in one place talks about coming, and in fact here, we believe that Jesus will come for his church in the rapture sometime before this seven years of tribulation. I believe that there is no prophecy right now on the books that must be fulfilled before Jesus would come for his church. There's nothing left. The reality is Jesus could come today. He could come tonight. He could come in the early morning of tomorrow for his church. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ shall arise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. Latin word, raptured, rapturos, caught up to meet the Lord in the air where we shall forever be with the Lord, wherefore comfort one another with these words. I believe that it's sometime, because as we have seen earlier in Thessalonians, God has not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation. So Jesus will come at some moment uh, in, in the future like a thief in the night. Jesus described it in one place. He said, two will be in a field, one will be taken, one will be left behind. Two will be in a bed, one will be taken, one will be left behind. And that in itself will probably cause tremendous uh, turmoil within the world. And then at some time after that, there, there is this seven-year uh, covenant that is made with Israel and many nations by this human instead of Messiah, a human uh, leader who comes on the scene. The seven years take place, ending, as I mentioned, in this tremendous uh, campaign of Armageddon, and then at the end of that time is the second coming of the Lord. Also, the rapture is secret as the church is caught up in the air, like a thief in the night. The second coming is public. As I mentioned, Revelation 1-7, every eye will see it as the church returns with Jesus to defeat Satan and his hosts. Now, let's get into uh, verses 8 and 9, the judgment, the coming judgment of this Antichrist. Verse 8, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. The lawless one. What does it mean when it describes this instead of Jesus as the Savior of the world, this other anti, instead of, human Messiah. It keeps calling him the lawless one, many places. What does that mean exactly? Let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that he doesn't believe in any laws, or the laws of a land, or the laws of a particular country, or a group of countries, or governments, or laws of men in general. When it is saying that he is the lawless one, it is specifically saying that this coming world leader will not accept God's law, this law, the word of God, as the basis of right and wrong and truth and not truth. He will say, you know, this is, uh, maybe we can glean some things from it, but it's not for everybody. And he will have his own set of principles and values, etc. But he will reject, as it were, uh, the concept of the Ten Commandments. And um, so he is lawless in that sense, that he, he rejects God's law. Um, once I believe the church is gone, I, I, this world, can you imagine, let's say that 
the Lord came tonight. And let's say that, that uh, sometime in the middle of the night the Lord comes, and then tomorrow morning millions of people have vanished virtually all over the world. Should such a thing happen, what would happen to the world? There is not one truly spirit-filled, born-again believer on the entire planet. What would happen to the world? There would, Jesus said, it's like, he said, you are the salt of the earth. So imagine salt is a preservative, removing salt, what that does. In the ancient world, salt was so valuable, people fought wars over salt. You know why? Because they didn't have refrigerators. And the only way you could save meat was to, you salted it. And that preserved it. So you could have food, so you would not die. And they would, you, you mess with somebody's, you know, arsenal of salt, you're going to get a war. Jesus said you are the salt of the earth. Because literally you can have great meat that will putrefy in less than 24 hours. It'll become poisonous and deadly for you to eat it if you don't have salt very quickly. If Jesus says the church is the salt of the earth, and we're not in many ways the church. I mean, in America, we've got a lot of freedom and God has blessed us, but we're a very small part of the body of Christ. Most of the church around the world does not have beautiful buildings and bookstores and cafes and Christian TV and Christian radio. I mean, many, many places are, they meet in homes. Sometimes they have to meet secretly. There's the underground church in much of the world. Uh, they suffer persecution unbelievably. That's the, the vast majority of the body of Christ. That's the way it is. And they, they don't even, they aren't even counted. They are looked at as something to step on on the way to the goals of various dictators around the world. It's so insignificant. So not even there, but not in the eyes of God. In the eyes of God and our Father in heaven, a small group of even two or three meeting together, huddled together in some cave, hut, underground, or hidden away, God watches. And he says, that's keeping this world from literally putrefying, and, and it's preserving it. Once you remove the salt, how fast can you imagine what would happen to this world without any restraint, any right or wrong? You know, it's kind of like let every man do what is right in his own eyes. It would be a very scary place. So the Antichrist virtually during this seven years tribulation has carte blanche. There's nothing holding him back. There's, there's nobody praying against him or witnessing or in that sense. Yes, there are believers that will come out of the tribulation. We'll talk about that in a moment. But in the beginning, it, it will be... Nothing will be able to stop the Antichrist. He is energized by Satan himself. Revelation 13.4 says, Who is like the beast and who can make war against him? Now that may sound funny for God to be calling a man a beast, but that's heaven's opinion of this man who does not want, need, believe in Jesus Christ, period. He is a false shepherd, and the Lord is angry with him because he is going to lead a vast multitude of people to world war, eventually. Though initially it will seem like peace. God's opinion of him is, you are a beast. Interesting, he did, he, not a man. Not a man. When you become that kind of a dictator, despot, uh, in the eyes of God you've lost your humanity. And you become like an animal. 
Now, it would be an exaggeration to say the Antichrist is an incarnation of Satan, as Jesus Christ is an incarnation of God. There's only really one incarnation, and that's Jesus. It would be more accurate to say that the coming Antichrist is a very deliberate imitation of Jesus. And Satan always imitates. His dream and desire is to be like God. He, he has no original thought, origin, or idea. He wants to imitate God. So this guy that, that will come on the scene because of the chaos that is in the world, because apparently there will need to be a covenant between Israel and many nations, seems to fit our own generation, does it not? But there's a book that I would recommend if you've never read it and you want to catch up on prophecy. Uh, it's, it's been around for a very long time, called The Late Great Planet Earth, written by Hal Lindsey. He has a little section he calls the future Fuhrer, um, almost as if Hitler was kind of a little smaller version of what this guy will be like. And, you know, I'm sure all of you have been in school and you watch those old black and white things where this, there's this guy you can't understand barking in German, yelling and, and screaming and, and uh, spittle coming out of his mouth and stadiums of hundreds of thousands of people watching mesmerized by this guy. And on a, I believe on a smaller level than what the Antichrist will be, but that was satanically, demonically energized times. And, and the whole thing that happened. And so anyway, a future dictator, a dictator, this is what Hal Lindsey writes. Who is a dictator? A dictator is a person with absolute authority. A person who has power over people. Does he appear suddenly on the scene and say, stop this outmoded democratic process. I am your leader now. No, that isn't the way it happens. A dictator does not thrust his rule upon people from the top down without provocation. His tyranny is the end result of chaos in the society that results in his rise to despotic power. The dictionary describes him as a person who seizes the authority over a nation as the result of an emergency. Unfortunately, I think that the world uh, in the future has more chaos in store, more war in store, more emergencies to come. And there will be such fear and terror. Jesus said men's hearts would fail for fear because of the things that shall come upon the earth. And people do strange things when they're afraid. They give up their, their rights, their liberties, their freedoms. And, and all of a sudden, it's, it's where others who want power and control can take advantage of vast uh, groups of people. Apparently, this guy will come on the scene and and the world will swoon for him in one way. Now, verse 9. Look at verse 9. It says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. This anti or instead of Christ will apparently in some way perform counterfeit signs and miracles. There will be something above even, you know, political or, or the best of humanistic uh, delivering of peace and prosperity about him. There will be something spiritual about this coming world leader. And they will be counterfeit. Now, I've put here in your notes a few scripture references. There are false Christians who are really children of the devil. Jesus said that in Matthew 13, verse 38, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 26. There are false Ministers, 2 Corinthians 11, 13. 
There are those who are in beautiful uh, churches, sanctuaries, cathedrals, who have vestments and robes and, uh, you know, stained glass windows. They've got all the accoutrements of a very holy place and a holy position of authority that are false ministers. Paul said that 2,000 years ago. Today is no different. And then who preach a false gospel. That's what's so deceptive about it. Well, he was wearing a robe and he was in the church and he said it's okay or whatever. Galatians chapter 1 verses 6 through 9. Let me encourage you. I trust you. And I trust the Holy Spirit in you. You don't have to live uh, by what I say or just take my word for anything. As the Apostle Paul said... There were those in the Bereans that I commend because they didn't take my word for anything, but they searched the scriptures themselves to see if what I said was actually true. Now, that's pretty bold. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's an apostle. He actually had seen the resurrected Jesus in glory on the road to Damascus. He was an apostle. He was sent by God. And he said, Paul, we appreciate you. We believe in you that you are sent from God and everything else, and we've listened to what you had to say, but we're going to go to the Scriptures ourselves and see if what you taught us is true. Paul's reaction to that could have been, how dare you? I'm an apostle. I've seen Jesus. How dare you question my authority, my teaching, my opinion, my uh, whatever? But instead, that's not what the Apostle Paul says. Paul basically says, good for you. Right on. Okay, I'm paraphrasing his his original Hebrew there, but he says, I like that. I'm glad because, you know what? Paul already knew what he said was true. He had absolute confidence in the revelation of the Holy Spirit and in the Word of God. And the good thing is, so also, I trust you. I trust you and the Holy Spirit within you and the Bible. You have no need that any man should teach you, but the Holy Spirit who is in you shall lead you and guide you into all truth. I don't, you don't have to just follow blindly a man or a group. Yes, there is pastors. Yes, there are pastor teachers. Yes, there should be, you know, respect for those God-given positions and places within the body of Christ. But, God forbid that anybody just blindly follow another man and not have a personal relationship with God, personal time of reading his word, personally having the Holy Spirit make the word of God come alive to you, confirm things to you, so that you can say, I believe this not because anybody else told me, but because I read it for myself and the Holy Spirit bears witness in my heart, this is true. So that you can actually at times be able to say, this is that which was spoken of in the word of God. That you know the word and you know how to claim the promises of God and and live within them. So, we know that uh, here's Satan. He comes with signs, counterfeit signs and miracles. We know that Satan can perform miracles to deceive. You say, "Where, where does Satan perform miracles? Are you telling me that Satan can perform miracles? Are you kidding me? Yes, he can. Go all to the story of Moses when he stood before Pharaoh. And all he has is a shepherd's staff. He pounds it into the ground. And he says, this is what the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, excuse me, who? He's looking behind Moses. I don't see an army here. I don't see your people even here. They're my slaves. I control them. Your God? Hey, do you know we have our own gods? 
No, I'm not going to let you go. So Moses says, you will let them go. But watch this. And he takes his staff and he throws it on the ground and it turns into a snake. Pharaoh, unimpressed, says, boys, come here. And his little magician guys come over and they take their little staves and and they throw them down and they all become snakes. So I'm like, great, snakes everywhere, you know. But then the cool thing is that Moses snake eats all their snakes. I like that part. But the point is, I mean, that's a, that's, that's supernatural. And it, it was, there was something spiritual about it, but it wasn't from God. And there are churches that have been around in, in San Diego where, woo, signs, wonders, supernatural, paranormal, uh, stuff you can't explain. Oh, then everything they say must be true. Where did you get that? Uh, no. Test everything. Test it by the Word of God. Because Satan likes to take things and put a little... By the way, do you know who knows this book better than me or you or all of us combined? Satan. He knows the Bible. He knows it very well. And he quoted it to Jesus in the wilderness. Remember? Is it not written? He's quoting scripture to Jesus. Satan is at his best, not when he, you know, all of the spooky stuff and witches and brew and, and, you know, the red masks and all of that stuff. He is at his best. What he really wants is to present himself as an angel of light. That people would be so mesmerized by him that they would say, wow, he is a God. He's so beautiful. Let's listen to him. And he'll use the Bible. He loves to mix maybe 90%. He he could use 90% of Scripture, 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 Scripture. And then all of a sudden, 10% of this twist. Something added. Something a little bit different. And it's that 10% of pure poison that contradicts the Word of God that unravels everything else. For instance, if we were to go down here to San Diego, the harbor, and I said, okay, everybody that wants to go, we're going to Hawaii, we're going on a vacation, and we've got a a big boat, and and, uh, we're going to get on that boat, we get on the boat, we've packed everything, and we've got our little uh, compass deal there, and navigational tools, and and the guy that owns the boat says, hey, you can have this, have fun, you guys, Uh, and that thing is accurate within five degrees. Now, you might, if you didn't know any better, say, hey... Five degrees? I got 95% accuracy? Cool. All right, what's the heading for uh, Hawaii? Okay, right there. Stay on it. Five degrees off from San Diego. You get to Hawaii. Guess what? You will never have seen Hawaii as you pass by. Just but for five degrees being off. That's how Satan works. Oh, you're going to have all the scripture. Oh, it sounds good. And, and there's so much of it that's true. And you're you're like a blizzard of this stuff, and then the little twist that is on it. So be very careful. In fact, Jesus said that there are even some people, look on the second page of your notes, there are some people who performed miracles in his name that were never saved. You can read it for yourself, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. There were people who performed miracles, or through them miracles were performed, who did not personally believe in Jesus. And guess who one of them was? Judas. Remember when it says that Jesus sent them out in pairs and they went out and they came back and they said, Lord, just like you said, we laid hands on the sick and in your name, people were healed. And we cast out demons in your name, Jesus, and they were cast out. 
And he said, don't marvel at that. Isn't that interesting? He said, don't, don't marvel at the miracles, but in this, that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. One of those who went out and who no doubt laid hands in Jesus' name and healed people and in Jesus' name cast out devils, but who never personally was ever saved or knew Jesus or believed in Jesus was Judas. And yet he miracles happened through him. God forbid that there be anyone who comes to this church and comes here and sits here and goes through the Bible studies and sings the songs and goes with us on mission trips or uh, does whatever good works they do and does not know Jesus personally. Because Jesus himself said that there will be many in that day that will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do many miracles in your name? Did we not cast out devils in your name? And what does Jesus say? He will say, sorry, I never knew you. Oh yeah, my name's powerful. A sickness has to obey it. Yeah, demons know who I am and that I have all power and all authority. But I never knew you. What a sad, sad day. Let that not be true of you or of me. Now look with me in verse 10 as we close with these last verses here. He says that with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. So now he's talking about, and here is a sobering truth the judgment of the world. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The day is coming when judgment is going to happen. Every world evil dictator, your, your day is coming of judgment. Every abuser of mankind, your day of judgment is coming. Every user of other human beings, every person who exploits, everyone who uses uh, the wealth of others for themselves, your day is coming. Judgment is coming. God's not going to allow those people uh, to, to continue into the kingdom of heaven. That's why it's going to be heaven. But it's important, uh, before talking about the reality of the coming judgment of the world, that we mention this. Remember I talked about that seven years of tribulation, the last three and a half of which is called the Great Tribulation. I want you to know this. Listen, to this is, reveals the heart of our Father. During those seven years of unbelievable anguish and war and famine and plague and disease and, and uh, earthquake and chaos and all the rest is going to be the most amazing, phenomenal, anointed, uh, vast revival of human beings coming into the kingdom of heaven and salvation such as the world has never known. I believe even greater surpassing than what happened in the days of the book of Acts. Because God is a merciful God. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. I mean, you, you have no idea how God looks for just the slightest, tiniest, littlest look for help me, save me. Done. The guy, in the thief on the cross, had murdered people. There he is, being crucified. Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Jesus turns to him after all he'd been through. 
today, you're going to be with me in paradise. That's all God needs. So little, so small. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 tells of this vast multitude that will get saved, this vast revival during the tribulation. Let's read it out loud together. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Now let me go on to read to you verses 13 and 14 of that same chapter. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Vast multitude, every nation, every language, every kindred, every tribe. We also know, Second Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Having said that, what Paul shares here is very simple, straightforward, and very sobering truth. There is a day of judgment coming. Just what is that judgment all about? Verse 11 tells us it is for those who have chosen to believe a lie. Now, Satan is a liar and has passed many lies onto the human race, but there is one lie that is the most damaging of them all. It is literally the lie that has been shared from the beginning. It has led the most human beings astray. Satan first spoke it in the Garden of Eden, and here it is. You shall be as gods. God told you you can't eat of the trees of the garden? He's holding out on you. Why would he let, look, does that look like a good tree to you? Good fruit to you? Notwithstanding that God gave Adam and Eve the entire planet with every tree upon it. And one tree in the entire planet, he says, please don't eat this tree. As a, as a basis of trust. How can two people love one another and walk together unless there's trust? If you don't have trust, you have no relationship. All God wanted was that, and so now Satan picks that one. So God says he's not going to let you have that. Oh, he knows that in the day that you eat of it, you'll be as gods. Decide for yourself what's right, what's good for you. You like that tree? Eat it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't know about you, but I think we've had a belly full of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, for Christians, it's like, okay, no thank you. Put it back. I want the tree of life. I want Jesus. The lie is the idea that man can be his own God and therefore can do whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases, however he pleases. Romans chapter 1, verse 25, the last scripture in your notes, explains it very well. Let's close by reading this scripture out loud. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. You know what, to me... uh, you know what's very, very obvious? And, and to me, very quite refreshing, is that I'm not God. And you know, as much as I love every one of you, neither are you. You're not God either. How, how in the world could we be God? We, we didn't have anything to do with even being born. Somebody made us. He made us, we ran away, then he bought us with his own blood. So now he says, I own you twice. I made you? Well, usually when you make something, it's yours. But then we ran away, then he bought us with his own blood, the blood of his son. Now I really, I made you, 
and I've bought you, I've redeemed you. You're mine forever, if you will have me. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's so easy. You know, the first thing you've got to recognize to become a Christian is that you're a sinner. For some reason, a lot of churches are afraid to say the word sin or sinner, or it's going to be offensive to people. To me, it's the most obvious thing in the world. What is a sinner? A sinner is somebody who is less than perfect. Does it take a rocket science to figure out that we're not perfect? I don't think so. And, uh, and that we need it and that we're not God? I don't think that's so hard to figure out. And then, we must then need a savior. And then the love story of Jesus. I mean, it's just so beautiful. God is good. All the time. Let's, let's pray. Father, we come before you and thank you for, uh, your word. And Lord, these are, these are some, Big subjects, heavy topics, and yet, Lord, I trust everyone that is here. There might be some new, younger believers who are hearing things for the first time and stretching their minds and imaginations and others who have heard various things. Wherever they are, Lord, I trust the Holy Spirit within them. And I trust your word, Lord, that that you will let us be purified by these things, encouraged by these things, comforted by these promises. May we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May we love one another. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Everyone said, Amen.